0: interest, then the United States could sit down with the interested countries and governments and private sectors as well uh, and see uh, what could be done jointly uh, to, as we discussed initially, to. reconfigure supply chains so that more of them uh, move into activities uh, in the Caribbean Basin. On the issue of free trade. So the Biden administration is obviously gun shy about discussing trade at all. And President uh, Biden early on and during his campaign said any discussion of free trade agreements is off the table for the time being. Uh, And I keep telling my friends in Ecuador and Uruguay, uh, you know, stop Stop hitting your head against a brick wall. It's not going to happen, at least uh, before the midterm elections. That's for sure. Rather, if you want to engage engage in discussion of trade, uh, talk about uh, in the case of Ecuador, for example, Ecuador doesn't even have a, a bilateral investment treaty, which is a first step. Typically, in moving towards a free trade agreement, so start there. Talk about something uh, that's feasible. Uh, talk about ESG, that is to say, labor and environmental standards, uh, to be sure that, uh, that that both Ecuador and uh, Uruguay uh, have on their books and in terms of implementation, uh, good uh, labor and environmental and governance standards. And then maybe at some time in the future, uh, you could look at free trade agreements for for those countries in the event of a change of of attitude uh, in the Biden administration. But in the meantime, supply chains, global value chains uh, is another way of talking about trade and investment that doesn't raise so many red flags in the hearts and minds of certain uh, interest groups in Washington, DC. So I think that's the rubric, supply chains. Under which uh, progress might be made, as you pointed out, uh, is made, is, is signaled uh, in that uh, piece of paper called uh, uh, APEP, uh, yeah, America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity.
1: So, my, you know, my, my next question was whether APEP alone was, is sufficient uh, to reach its objectives or do we need other policy? But it sounds like it, we don't have an agreement, it's just kind of a suggestion. So we clearly do need
0: Very incipient. Now, I would, uh, in light of the headlines that we suddenly woke up to today, we had thought that the legislation kicking around on the Hill uh, to invest heavily in an American industrial policy uh, in, in areas of clean energy, microchips, uh, electric Vehicles and, and batteries, uh, some elements of uh, biotechnology and pharmaceuticals. Uh, that legislation had seemed dead, but suddenly arose from the dead. Uh, Senator Manchin suddenly seemed to have had a change of heart or negotiated some deals. Now, we can't be sure that the legislation will pass, but the current headline suggests that it might, and that, that would be up to $400 billion of, in effect, subsidies uh, to support uh, industrial development in the United States. Now, uh, is this backdoor protectionism that, uh, in fact, could hurt the Caribbean basin and Latin America? Uh, Can, uh, in its wisdom, the Congress at the last minute insert some language uh, which would say, invest not just in America, but in the Americas more broadly, Right now, I don't know if uh, it's possible to insert that into the language into the legislation as it's being written as we speak, uh, but that would certainly open up uh, important channels of, of funding uh, and investment uh, into the Caribbean basin if that legislation, if the aperture of that legislation were widened to include uh, the Caribbean basin or the Americas, plural
1: the The trade promotion authority, the TPA, lapsed in uh, July of last year, uh, and the Biden administration has not uh, restored the the TPA. Do you think? Do Do you believe? Is your opinion that the absence of of the TPA reduces the potential, you know, success of APEP when it does have all the meat on the bones?
0: Well, yeah, of course. Um we already have with Mexico and Canada, the USMCA, a free trade agreement there. Central America um, uh, and uh, has capped the DR already, so we have that. Um, Car- the CARICOM uh, has uh, you know updated CBI, uh, which is not quite a, a free trade agreement, but goes a long way to g- um, giving access to the US market. So uh, those building blocks are, are already in place for, of many of the countries in the Caribbean Basin. So as I suggest, the more modern way to, to think of things is in terms of the supply chains. Uh, and that issue is on the agenda uh, and can be discussed. With regard to Ecuador and Uruguay that would that don't have free trade agreements, bilateral agreements with the United States, uh, one could imagine down the road uh, a trade promotion authority specific to those two countries. Uh, one could imagine, perhaps after the midterm elections, that uh, that could be something uh, for discussion.
1: Does the does the absence of the uh, of, of the TPA um, uh, communicate the level of commitment of the administration or lack thereof? You know, why did the Biden administration let it lapse, and how come they haven't restored it? And what does that say about their commitment to the, the APEP?
0: Now, well, uh, as, as I said, this administration is very gun-shy about talking about international trade. Uh, look uh, look at uh, President Biden's remarks, uh, even at the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles recently, which is, after all, an international uh, body. And uh, I don't know if if he ever used the word trade, <laughs> maybe once or twice. Uh, but clearly, this is an administration that's because of um, certain uh, elements of the Democratic Party, um, Let's say the left wing of the party, the unions uh, are, are very nervous about trade. They see it as disadvantageous to their constituents. And the Republican Party itself, which used to be very pro-free trade, is now quite divided uh, on on whether or not trade is, is a net benefit to the United States or not. So uh, in this environment, I think the administration feels that of, of all of the issues and all the many problems on their... On their agenda, uh, they don't want to uh, engage in a fight right now over additional uh, free trade agreements.
1: Now you mentioned that there are existing free trade agreements uh, on the books. One of which is the uh, Dominican Republic Central American FTA, the CAFTA DR. Um, there is an argument that the you know that the CAFTA DR should be improved with respect to intellectual property and um, and digital trade uh, ground rules. On the levels of the USMCA, uh, do you agree with that assessment that the CAFTA DR is lacking and should be need some TLC with respect to intellectual property and digital trade?
0: Well, of course, CAFTA DR that uh, was negotiated, what, 2004, five, six? So we're talking 15 plus years ago. The world has changed quite a lot. The whole issue of di- digitalization, for example, uh, em- emphasis on aspects of intellectual property rights, uh, issues of cybersecurity. Uh, these are issues that are much more salient today than they were then. Uh, so, the idea of, uh, of updating uh, an agreement from 15 years ago uh, could make sense. Uh, one has to be, ca- as was done with the USMCA and NAFTA. One has to be careful, though, because do you really want to reopen an agreement uh, that allows the people who never really liked the agreement in the first place to try to sink the whole ship? Uh, the other complication we have to recognize with CAFTA DR now is Nicaragua, and there are many people who would like to see Nicaragua in some way denied the benefits of CAFTA DR. Uh, so that's uh, that's that's a complication uh, if as we think about the future of CAFTA of CAFTA DR. Uh, there are some uh, changes that would be, I think, interesting, uh, but we have to think very carefully about the tactics. Uh, So uh, USMCA uh, uh, made some changes with regard to compliance on uh, labor and environmental standards. Now there are uh, already clauses in CAPTA-DR that uh, do uh, address labor and environmental standards, uh, but the issue then is always uh, execution. Uh, are, the, are the local governments uh, sufficiently monitoring uh, behavior on the factory floor at floor uh, and, and uh, in the, on the farms? And um, so that, that issue uh, could be looked at. I think that would be interesting. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be in terms of CAFTA-DR directly. There are many ways to address uh, ESG uh, issues uh, that could be valuable.
1: APEP mentions the possibility of an increase in uh, for the IDB invest, uh, which is uh, which invest in private businesses in conjunction with the multilateral investment fund. Um, Would that be enough, do you think, to um, put some uh, real uh, momentum and force behind APEP to increase not only IDB invest, but more money for the Inter-American Development Bank in its entirety?
0: Yeah, so the idea of a recapitalization of the Inter-American Development Bank has been on the table for some time now. Uh, a significant uh, injection of, of equity would enable the IDB to raise its annual lending level from about 13 billion for the region up to about 20 billion, uh, which uh, you know, if well targeted and well spent, uh, could be a good shot in the arm uh, for the region. Uh, the, the IDB has really had a leadership role intellectually in pointing out the potential from the relocation of global supply chains uh, into the Americas. Uh, and uh, what the IDB has to do now is go from that uh, smart conceptual framework to uh, actually uh, designing and implementing specific policies uh, in the various countries that would advance uh, the goals and objectives of creating an ecosystem. When one talks about uh, relocation of global supply chains, uh, what do investors look at? They wanna be sure there's good infrastructure, roads, airports, et cetera, to get the products in and out quickly and efficiently. Um, they look at energy, what's the cost of energy? Uh, is there a well-trained labor force? Uh, do most of the population have only a sixth or a ninth grade education, or have they at least finished high school? So they're more easily trained for specific tasks. Uh, and the IDB can play a role in uh, making sure that those uh, essential uh, elements of a, a good business climate, of a, uh, of, a, of a strong, resilient ecosystem, that those are in place in the host countries.
1: Let's go to the topic of uh, why the GCC, the Greater Caribbean Basin, matters in, in the first place. Um, you state in your white paper that, uh, you know, that while globalization may be stalled uh, regionalism is resurgent. Uh, the Chinese economy is doing, is, is engaged in efforts to strengthen and bolster their uh, near abroad. So is Great Britain and Europe, and so is uh, Russia. But uh, by comparison, our near abroad, which is the greater Caribbean community, has been left, quote unquote, uh, floating largely on their own. Um, I wanted to uh, get your opinion on that, Um, you know, and we have a a slide that I want to show to you from your white paper that this, you know, that illustrates the relative position economically and socially of the countries within the greater Caribbean basin. Um, And uh, I found it notable that the Republic of Panama, where we're streaming live from, uh, for a country that's only 4 million people, uh, is sixth in GDP growth, um, per capita gross national income, third, the human development index, we're number one within the group, and our homicide rate is fifth. So, uh, you know, we stack up to be a very attractive, uh, you know, uh, environment for business within this community of countries. But the broader point is uh, that the U.S. can has work to do. To help this region, is that correct? Yeah.
0: So, um, as you point out, uh, anyone who's been in Panama, you know, in the last ten years, uh, Panama City in particular, you know, has to marvel at the very rapid growth rates and all the, particularly in construction and real estate. Uh, an issue, of course, is the distribution of the benefits of growth, and that's uh, an issue worldwide uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, And that's uh, something that we're we're all increasingly concerned about. Uh, There's a lot of political instability uh, worldwide, again, including here, I have to say, in the United States. There are lots of reasons for that. Some of that has to do with identity politics. Some of that has to do with archaic political institutions. Uh, But uh, some of it has to do with a sense of uh, uh, inclusion or lack thereof. Uh, that many people feel that, yeah, the global economy or the national economy has boomed in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, but maybe the bottom half have not participated fully uh, in the in the fruit of that growth. And so uh, what should be done about that? And then and that gets into tricky issues, because after all, you're talking about uh, the distribution of wealth and income, and uh, those are issues where uh, people really dig in and try to defend their interests. Uh, So then you get into, of course, tax policy. um, And that that is also uh, always very contentious, uh, the distribution of physical benefits. Uh, But uh, the Biden administration, you know, came in trying with the idea that it would try to redress some of the uh, inequalities in the United States. But a lot of that legislation uh, is stalled in the Congress because, after all, the Democrats don't have uh, a really strong working majority in the two houses. And at least most political pundits think that their majority is as thin as it is now, is likely to evaporate entirely in the November midterm elections. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, in some countries uh, where there's discontent on these issues, uh, people take to the streets. And that's what we've seen recently in Panama, a couple of years ago in Chile, uh, and re- you know recently in Sri Lanka, worldwide. so um, And then on top of that, one might mention uh, the shocks of the pandemic, uh, the shocks emanating from the Ukraine-Russia war, and, and the, the, the sudden big jump in two basic consumable commodities, uh, gas, uh, oil, and foodstuffs. Uh, and then add to that, the increasing interest rates uh, emanating from the U.S. monetary policy. These are all big, big negative shocks that the, that the global economy is going to have to deal with. And I'm waiting to see. So far, we haven't seen a real response. Uh, one with the only institution I see out there capable of moving money fast in response to problems of this magnitude um, is the International Monetary Fund. But the International Monetary Fund just recently poured a lot of money out uh, to help countries cope with the COVID crisis. So I think there's some hesitancy out there for the IMF to so quickly, again, uh, jump in in a massive way. Also, there's, I know there's the concern that if the IMF helps countries with their uh, fiscal policy and, their, and servicing their debts, some people say, well, how about China? There are a lot of debts that uh, countries now owe to China. Will China participate uh, in an active way in various debt restructuring or rescheduling programs? Uh, and that's, that's a big geopolitical issue. Uh, and given the relationship between the United States and China, can they sit around the table and reach some agreement on uh, on global finance at this time? So those are some of the big issues that we're facing right now, Anthony.
1: Yeah, speaking of China, it's a great segue. Um, your uh, figure from the white paper uh, illustrates the relationship between China and the and the GCC. And there, and a concern uh, that has that, that you expressed and that others have expressed is that uh, China is increasing its uh, influence within the region, uh, kind of at threatening the position of the United States. Um, uh, you know, of note in this chart, I see an opportunity uh, for China to increase exports to the region, to the Latin American Caribbean region. Uh, and to the Caribbean in particular. Um, At least that's what this chart communicates to me. What is your position on uh, China and what can be done to uh, forestall Chinese economic insertion and the associated diplomatic influences that correspond with that?
0: Yeah, so my own point of view is... uh... At least at this point of time, I don't use the word threat with regard to the Chinese uh, trade and investment in the Caribbean uh, for the most part. Um, yes, um, the rate of increase of Chinese presence uh, is, is rapid and dramatic, but still, the United States is by far the dominant external economic influence in the region. Are they talking about trade or investment? Uh, not to mention the flows of people back and forth, uh, the very large diasporas in the United States, uh, the role of remittances, uh, which is very important for the economies of of a lot of countries in the Caribbean basin. Uh, So uh, all of that uh, tourism, all of that uh, overshadows dramatically uh, the the Chinese presence. Uh, But yes, the Chinese presence, of course, is increasing. Now there, if you get to the specific project level, and the Chinese offered to you know, build a, a bridge or a dam or a soccer stadium. If the United States wants to compete, it has to put projects uh, on the table uh, with uh, engineering and finance. And uh, there, uh, the U.S. government uh, uh, designed the Development Finance Corporation uh, precisely to compete at a project level with China, but uh, when that legislation was passed, some skeptics put in a poison pill, which said that really um, the De- Development Finance Corporation could only uh, be active in low-income countries, which essentially means Africa and South Asia, uh, because per capita income, we may think there's poverty in, in the Caribbean Basin, but on a per capita income basis, they're by and large considered middle income. But there is a waiver in the... Uh, Charter of the Development Finance Corporation, which says that if there's a national security determination, then uh, the DFC can be active in middle income countries, which would be the Caribbean Basin. So, my suggestion is and the DFC, after all, is a US government agency, and the board of directors includes the US Secretary of State. I would have thought the US Secretary of State would sit on the board and, and say to the CEO, uh, We, the US. Biden administration, the State Department, determined that it is in the national security interest of the DFC to help finance projects in the Caribbean basin. Uh, To my knowledge, that determination, surprisingly, has not yet been made. It ought to be made if we want to be able to compete uh, with the Chinese
1: uh, on a project-level basis in the Caribbean basin. You know, a good segue to the next uh your comments are to the next point which is you know the potential of the the greater caribbean uh region uh with you know and and the benefits that would inure to to the u.s is considerable I mean, you you make the point um in your white paper that uh i think the number is uh a significant number if we could uh realize all of the bilateral trade potential, we're looking at $2.8 trillion, uh, possibly in 30 years, if we could realize what this chart uh, uh, depicts or illustrates, how do we get from A to B? How do we capture all that potential in our near abroad?
0: Yes. So uh, the uh, with the these various maps in the paper, uh, Widening the Aperture, which I should mention was uh, published by the Wilson Center, the Latin American program there. Uh, yeah, um, of course, because of the uh, <clears throat> low income levels of most of the countries in the Caribbean Basin, uh, they're way short of where they could be with regard to the consumption uh, at, of products coming from the United States, uh, <clears throat> as well as their capacity to export. Uh What uh, you do see is that, varying from country to country, 20 to 30% of their populations have chose to exit to work in the United States, which is to say the countries are exporting labor as a service uh, rather than goods. Uh, That in itself is not entirely uh, bad. That's, That's part of the flows of history. Uh, it does deprive some of the Caribbean Basin countries of some of their better-educated uh, labor, which of course is a development uh, problem. Uh, but basically, if you could increase the growth rates from two, three, four percent a year uh, to more or less Asian growth rates of five, six, seven percent a year on a sustained basis, then just do the math, and you could you could have a doubling and tripling of the per capita incomes uh, and hence of the trade levels uh, between those countries and the United States so that uh, the weight uh, of those countries in the US economy would increase. Now, of course, if you look at Mexico, uh, Mexico already is a very big uh, trade and investment partner of the United States. Uh, It could be more so, 130 million people uh, in Mexico, Uh, the uh, current administration however in mexico lopez obrador um you know doesn't seem very interested in fact uh you know the business per- community perceives perceives him as you know fundamentally antagonistic towards uh the private sector particularly towards uh private investment uh although you know not some people in his administration feel differently uh but if you're an investor uh, and you're seeing the, the rhetoric and some of the actions of lopez obrador um, you know, you're, you're thinking twice before you're going to risk too much capital uh, in Mexico today.
1: You know, the, the section and the topic that we're talking about currently is why does the uh, GCC, the, the Greater Caribbean Community, matter? Uh, one of the reasons that you uh, make in your white paper is that uh, we're inextricably intertwined, uh, the U.S. and the region. And one of the Reasons is because uh as you mentioned all the migration from the the region the Caribbean and Latin America to the u s and this chart I found fascinating of all the uh, the you know the number of individuals that are claiming ancestry to the greater uh, Caribbean community um, is this um uh, you know uh, is this a a good or a bad thing meaning when people uh Claim that ancestry? Are they leaving their ties behind uh, to the extent that they uh, don't have uh, uh, an interest in uh, raising the position of the of the Caribbean Basin? Um, but they're you know they're looking for bigger and better in the U.S. Or is this a is this chart telling us that there is potential there? Um, yeah, that, that's that's a very interesting question. Of course, it varies a lot
0: with the different populations. Uh, in some in some cases, I think some of the some of the migrants, uh, you know, were not happy where they come from. Uh, they may still be proud of their nationality, but they're antagonistic towards their governments and and, and wouldn't want to be involved in any sort of you know lobbying efforts on you know done in coordination with uh, their governments. But yes, uh, people have remarked for a long time that diaspora communities uh, could become uh, internal pressure groups for. The United States to have more active and positive policies uh, towards their countries of origin, Uh, and you do see some of that activity. You also have uh, some individuals. For example, I could point out that the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, her dad uh, was a native, is a native of Jamaica, uh, and she, uh, you know, has spent time in the Caribbean. At the summit in the Americas, there was an agreement on energy uh, policies that was negotiated between the United States and uh, the Caribbean. And uh, Kamala Harris played a role there in part because she is seen as uh, a daughter of the, uh, of, of the Caribbean. Uh, there are, and of course, uh, there are many, many other uh, descendants of the Caribbean Basin who are prominent uh, in American society. Um, they vary on the extent to which they get actively involved um, in in uh, in politics, uh, I do think that and countries try this from time to time. Uh, governments could try to do a little more uh, in terms of, of organizing and activating the diasporas uh, to help them uh, with regard to their relations uh, with the United States government and private sector as well.
1: Let's turn to some of the regional stresses um, in the region. Um, one of which has to do with energy policy, and um, I'd like to put this chart up from your uh, white paper, which shows renewable energy performance by country. Which uh, you know Costa Rica is doing very well, and uh, you see the countries on the other end of the spectrum. You know the 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 issue is what does this chart, or or what how does this chart instruct us with respect to nearshoring? You know, how does it give us an indicator of opportunities to realize the potential nearshore?
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, as you see, uh, there's a wide dispersion. Uh, there's a lot of potential uh, when you talk about renewables. Uh, hydropower is uh, behind a lot of the, uh, the renewable energy that you see d- uh, displayed here. Uh, you also have thermal. But uh, we're talking about countries that are, tropical or semi-tropical, where there's a lot of sun. So a huge solar potential and wind uh, along the coasts of many countries as well. So geography, uh, in this case, uh, seems to be leaning in the right direction. Now, renewable energy and supply chains in two senses. One is uh, to reduce the cost of energy within countries so the industry and services can be more competitive, uh, more cost effective but then also to be directly linked uh, to the renewable energy supply chains, that is, producing um, batteries, for example, producing solar panels, uh, for example. Now, that would require uh, active policies, I think. Uh, Now, here we get to this legislation that I mentioned initially. Um, The U.S., it looks like, uh, is poised to pass some important legislation uh, which would stimulate the production in the United States of uh, renewable energy, uh, including wind and solar. Uh, Is that going to be disadvantageous to the Caribbean Basin? Or is it possible to widen that aperture such that these subsidies, these incentives for the production of renewable energy encompasses not just uh, the 48 states, but also uh, the near abroad, uh, the Caribbean Basin states?
1: There, there has been argument made, <laughs> you know, some have argued uh, that one of the keys, one of the connections between uh, the energy policy and nearshoring is the ability of the region, Latin American Caribbean region, to have enough energy, sufficient energy resources to attract manufacturing concerns to the region that that currently uh, the resources are insufficient. Uh, the question is, uh, where will you know what is the road to get to increase the resources in the region um some say it's through mexico uh you know some say it's a combination of clean and not so clean energy you know the plentiful energy is more so more important than whether it's clean so that we can attract uh manufacturing concerns what is your opinion in that regard
0: oh, that will vary a lot from country to country of course trinidad and tobago um, Gas and energy producer, Guyana, also poised in that direction. So that's very different from uh, countries where there's hydrocarbons and coal are uh, of limited supply. Uh, They've been largely dependent upon importing uh, energy, and that is a major drain on their foreign exchange uh, situation. So those are the countries, if they're looking to decrease their energy dependence, uh, and if they don't have uh, oil and gas and coal then or, and hydro, then, uh, of course, we're talking about wind and solar. And we've already discussed that somewhat, uh, but when that would require uh, uh, integration uh, into global supply chains, which would enable them to uh, significantly um alter their energy mix so that renewables become a gradually increasing percentage. Now there, of course, as you see, Costa Rica already very high up. Costa Rica has a mix of of renewable energies. Some of that is hydro, but for years, uh, hills in Costa Rica have been dotted with uh, windmills uh, and and increasingly with solar panels. Uh, So Costa Rica is so far ahead of the curve. Uh, Back in the 1970s, Costa Rica developed uh, a green awareness, and that of course is the country brand that is used uh, for renewables, uh, that is used also for tourism, and green tourism is a major attraction, a major reason uh, people w- want to visit uh, Costa Rica. So uh, one has to uh, applaud the Costa Ricans for being so so foresightful, but also executing. Not only did they have the insight that 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 being green. Uh, could have a big payoff uh, economically and socially, uh, but they went ahead and and did it and gave the right incentives and have educated their entire population. You go into a primary school in Costa Rica and all the kids are learning about renewables and what it means to have a, a green economy. So it's, it's something very deeply rooted uh, throughout the society. So kudos to Costa Rica.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, on a practical uh, level, is Mexico really the key to, to increasing the energy resources in the in the region for Mexico itself, but also to the extent that Mexico could be a, a conduit through which we, you know, in, in the Central America could receive more resources and therefore be more attractive in the near-shoring competition. Uh,
0: so Mexico, of course, does have uh, a lot of gas and, and energy. They could do a lot more in the renewable space. Uh, I know there's been suggestions that... Uh, Mexico uh, link its gas, uh, gas, uh, you know, um, pipelines uh, into and through Central America uh, to provide uh, inexpensive energy. Uh, But I have to say after watching the Mexican performance over the years, um, it it falls short of uh, aspirations of, of what could be done uh, because uh, Mexican government, uh, although people like Lopez Obrador, you know, conceptually advance the idea of a Mex- of Mexican cooperation in Central America, uh, execution over the years has fallen short. Uh, so uh, we'll see what happens. The potential is there, uh, but whether that potential is uh, um, actually actualized, uh, we'll see.
1: Another consideration in um, energy policy and, uh, you know, inter-country uh, uh, mm-hmm. trade, which has something to do with uh, the ability to realize near-shoring potential, is harmonization uh, of trade laws and, and regulations between uh, the countries within the region. Um, the IDB President uh, Claver coroni mm-hmm. advocates. Uh, reforms in transportation and logistics in the region uh, in the sense that they need, you know, those uh, areas need to be harmonized so that there is a network that is uh, not uh, diversion or distinct, that it's, uh, it's, um, you know, holistic and working together. Um, What are the political, social, economic dynamics that are needed within the region to achieve such harmonization?
0: Yeah, so that's a very big question. Regionalization, of course, has long been an aspiration. Uh, Central America, uh, when they first became independent from Spain, of course, initially there was a a Central American uh, Union, uh, but that fell apart. Uh, And ever since, Central Americans have tried to uh, improve uh, cooperation and and integration among themselves uh, with varying degrees of success. CAFTA-DR was meant... Uh, to to help spur uh, increased economic integration uh, among the, uh, the, the countries, uh, Central America plus the DR. I think it had some success. Uh, but uh, now, then you get to very technical levels of harmonizing uh, certain rules and regulations with regard to industry, labor, and environmental standards, uh, uh, the, the movement, just the numbers, the digitalization of trade, uh, border. Uh, frictions uh, that could be, uh, you know, alleviated, all of these sort of very technical details. Uh, people have been working at them over a long period of time. And you ask, well, why haven't these problems been solved? And the answer is politics, because some people benefit from obstacles to trade. Uh, people in the customs business, it's, it's widely known, that pe- why do people want to work in the customs offices of these countries? Well, we know why. <laughs> um, and they use these various uh, detailed rules and regulations uh, for personal advantage uh so yes uh the extent to which there could be more uh, harmonization that would be a good thing uh, we talked initially about uh, the apep initiative coming out of the summit of the americas one of the is- one of the agenda items there is certainly all of these issues of trade facilitation uh, the world bank and the inter-american development bank also constantly are talking to countries about uh, solving some of these problems uh, so that would be great both in central america and uh, in the caribbean uh, in Central America, unfortunately, we have now the problem of Nicaragua. And, uh, you know, Nicaragua is a big country right in the middle of Central America. And uh, the, the uh, increasingly tyrannical regime of Daniel Ortega and uh, his spouse, Rosario Murillo, uh, makes it very difficult uh, to think about negotiating with CAFTA-DR. Uh, so we'll have to, on all of these issues, uh, so we'll have to see uh, what the, ha- how best to handle that that difficult uh, and very sad actually uh, development in Nicaragua.
1: It appears to me that another obstacle to harmonization could be sovereignty. You know, have a lot of countries that have an interest. Uh, it might be not a, a monetary interest, but just a kind of emotional, psychological interest in in making their own rules. You know, and so, determining yeah. what comes in their borders. Well, yes,
0: sovereignty, but if you look beneath the, the the label of sovereignty, the interests that are being protected are usually the interests of one or two families. <laughs> uh, with, they want to just protect their little monopoly uh, inside what, after all, are small economies. So uh, just like uh, governments use the word sovereignty when the international community criticizes their evidently Deficient human rights policies. So we shouldn't allow uh, the, the the sovereignty uh, flag uh, to be misused to uh, to cover up uh, um, practices which actually harm the populations.
1: Very very good point. Uh, so let's uh, let's go to nearshoring policies or nearshoring supply chains. Um, Very quickly, and I apologize for giving you such a short period of time to talk about such a complex issue. But, you know, what are the root causes of the supply chain disruptions that we experienced last year and are still experiencing?
0: Well, uh, you know, basically you had everything from the pandemic uh, to the issue of China, U.S.-China tensions, and then tensions in Eastern Europe. Uh, Basically, a lot of companies uh, practiced uh, very, uh, very efficient, uh, lean supply chains. Uh, but the result of that was inventories were very small. Uh, and so when there were some disruptions, they just didn't have the depth, uh, the resiliency uh, needed. And in some cases, the um, so the, the producers were, were very concentrated in uh, a small geographic area. Uh, and that was another vulnerability. So uh, put all this together, uh, the geopolitics, the, the pandemics, uh, some of the uh, technical issues and people began to think, well, uh, supply chains are a good thing. We're not talking about uh, suddenly globalization ending. People who, for, who, look, who think in those terms, I think are, are uh, not understanding the situation. But yes, uh, we do need to um, make them more resilient, uh, safer, more secure. Uh, and everyone's on board with that, I think, both the, co- both the private sector, the companies, uh, and certainly the US government. Uh, and that is precisely, uh, where we go full circle in our discussion, and that's the opportunity uh, for the Caribbean Basin to locate uh, the production of some of, some of these uh, goods and services uh, in their countries uh, to create good jobs under proper labor and environmental standards uh, uh, for, for their populations.
1: And in what uh, way do free trade zones uh, facilitate that? this is a great slide from your white paper, uh, which shows a plentiful abundance of free trade zones in the region. Uh, Panama, I know for sure, has over 30 within, uh, within its sovereign territories. Um, how, do, how do we take advantage of all of these free trade zones to promote nearshoring?
0: Yes, and Panama has recently instituted some new laws and regulations uh, to improve the uh, the ecosystem to attract supply chains. Yeah, so the region, as this uh, uh, figure shows, is or is not starting from zero. Far from it. Uh, it already has a good base, a good platform. Uh, it already has uh, free trade zones, which are basically uh, you know areas that are cemented over uh, and with some fences around them, uh, but that have certain rules and regulations. Uh, which are attractive uh, to trade and investment. Uh, And uh, so there's already a good basis. There's a knowledge basis. There's an experiential basis uh, that that the region uh, can build on. So what is now being looked at, okay, what are the remaining obstacles to integration to global supply chains? And we've already discussed a lot of them. Uh, everything from the training of the labor force to, to logistics, infrastructure, cost of energy. Uh, we have to deal with all of those sets of issues uh, to make the region sufficiently attractive, such that when companies say, gee, maybe we're overexposed uh, in, in China, uh, maybe we should move a certain percent of our production someplace else, uh, where else? Vietnam. It's a choice. That's what many have chosen, actually, ironically, given the whole history of uh, the United States and Vietnam, for example, uh, or some countries uh, in the Caribbean basin, at least a certain percent. And that's really the, the issue on the table today. Uh, what do the countries need to do to attract more of that uh, shifting pie? Uh, what could or can the U.S. government and its various agencies and legislation do uh, if it sees an interest in strengthening the economies, the policies, uh, uh, the human experience uh, in the Caribbean basin, uh, what policies uh, should it adapt, and how should the US and the countries of the region cooperate uh, to optimize uh, the opportunities presented uh, in today's geopolitical world.
1: And you in closing, uh, you know, take us a long way to getting the answer to that when you and your white paper talk about the technology hubs and how uh, you know, we can use the GCC to uh, to internationalize President Biden's uh, initiatives around technology hubs. Um, when I uh, look at this and, and get excited about the opportunity, I think, wow. And, and, and being connected uh, to the region, you know, I think there's got to be a lot of education and workforce training programs to make that possible. Um, so what are some of the examples of the education and workforce training programs that the Biden administration could promote in the region, uh, to realize the technology hub network that you propose?
0: Well, with regard to workforce training, there are so many different approaches, right? Uh, first of all, the primary responsibility is the responsibility of governments, uh, are, what are governments doing to incentivize, uh, uh Students, should they at least stay through high school? What are the incentives uh, for firms to pr- to train their workforce? Uh, and there are all sorts of incentives that could be offered. Uh, firms tend to underinvest. We know uh, in the education of their workforce. Governments have to look at and see why that's the case and what remedies are possible. Uh, what are the incentives being given to foreign investors, uh, such that they also? Uh, upgrade the quality of their labor force. There are gender issues here. Are, are, are uh, women being given uh, you know f- fully inclusive opportunities? Um, I, I suggest in my paper, actually, for example, that in certain companies, uh, you, you have a lot of women uh, as a percent of the total workforce, but they tend to be in the less well-paid jobs. Maybe there could be incentives given such that uh, the mid-tier jobs uh, also have Uh, let's say at least 50% of women in that labor force. Uh, Then the U.S. government, of course, can encourage, uh, well, the World Bank, the IMF, they all do uh, educational programs, they could do more. Uh, Then uh, the the United States can encourage partnerships between U.S. vocational schools, for example, and local vocational schools in the region. Uh, The U.S. can give scholarships uh, to bring uh, promising Caribbean Basin uh, students uh, to the U.S. Uh, These days, with remote learning, there's so much that can be done. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, there are so many opportunities in the area of education uh, so that this this issue of uh, a quality workforce uh, should be uh, an area where the region uh, should excel.
1: Well, um, you know, we don't have enough time to go into all of your areas of expertise. Uh, you've been very generous with your time to give us an hour. We're honored to have you with us this morning. Thank you so much. Um, you've, uh, you've touched and done and been uh, an expert in so many different fields. We're going to spend some time trying to read some of those 200 books and articles or more <laughs> that you've written. And we're going to be following you from Panama. So, Professor, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity. I quite enjoyed the conversation.
1: Take care.